Hi everyone, uh, my name is Glenn Deason and uh, today I will speak with Alexander Mercuris and Ambassador Chas Freeman. And uh, well, for those who are not familiar with Chas Freeman, he was the former US Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. He was also the US Ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He worked with Kissinger to open China in the 70s, he worked with developing European security architecture after the Cold War. Well, uh, well, the resume is perhaps too long and impressive to go through everything, but uh, it's a great pleasure to be speaking uh, again with uh, someone, uh, well, such a political heavyweight. So uh, thank you again for taking time. I've actually done some dieting and I've lost some weight, So, but I appreciate the thought. <laughs> so, uh, well, I thought since the last time the three of us spoke, there's been great changes in Ukraine, the Middle East, also the wider world. And I think as a result, we can, it appears that the NATO narrative, as well as NATO unity, appears to be cracking to some extent. And uh, again, in the past, to argue that the coup in 2014 and NATO expansion provoked the Russian invasion was considered propaganda. Now, uh, NATO, Secretary General, NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg more or less admitted that this, well, explicitly admitted this is why Russia invaded. In the past, you know, to suggest that Ukraine was losing or that this was a proxy war was also dismissed as propaganda. Now it's widely accepted. Uh, it's also been become common knowledge that uh, the Minsk agreement was sabotaged for seven years. Also, the tentative peace agreement in early 2022. And uh, yeah, it even used to be controversial to argue that NATO aims to fight Russia with uh, Ukrainians. Uh, but again, when Stoltenberg recently visited the US to sell the idea of continuing this losing war. His main pitch was, you know, this is a good way of weakening, degrading the Russians, and also it's great for American arms manufacturers. So to some extent, parroting what other uh, leaders in Washington have said. Uh, and of course, when it comes to issues such as Nord Stream, there's uh, simply no longer any narrative, it seems. Uh, yes, there's attempt now in Washington to blame the Ukrainians for the attack. So without any good narrative, we simply stop speaking about it. But nonetheless, this uh, fear of losing control over the narrative is, uh, I guess, was very evident, especially with uh, the panic over the Tucker Carlson interview of uh, President Putin, which was denounced as propaganda before it was even released, which was uh, interesting. But um, I would say maybe nothing new came out of this, but uh, for many Westerners, uh, it was perhaps their first exposure to the arguments from the other side. So. Uh, I thought we, we could start with this, uh, uh, Ambassador Freeman. Uh, what was your main takeaway from this interview with uh, Putin? Well, of course, Tucker Carlson claims, perhaps correctly, that um, he'd been trying to get this interview for three years, um, but that it was sabotaged by uh, American intelligence agencies who hacked his email and leaked the information to the New York Times. Uh, which spooked the Russians and had them cancel the interview he'd earlier arranged. I think that's an interesting backstory. Uh, the main impact of the interview, of course, is that uh, it's broken through the border fence that um, we erected against any contact uh, with uh, the much demonized Mr. Putin. Um, and anyone who watched the interview saw a man very much uh, in command of his uh, intellect uh, with an encyclopedic memory, um, perhaps not the most brilliant uh, performer on 
attention deficit media like television, um, but uh, still a very impressive uh, performance overall. And I think the interview has had several, well, at least 200 million uh, views now. So it's clear that uh, uh, it has broken the taboo of hearing the other side's point of view. Uh, there were a number of points in it, as some of which you mentioned, which were really very interesting. Uh, confirmations from Mr. Putin of things that others, um, including German and and Ukrainian and uh, other European uh, uh, other Europeans, have confirmed uh, about uh, or Naftali Bennett's uh, uh, confirmation of the Turkish and uh, Israeli mediation uh, five weeks into the into the war, producing an agreement that was then sabotaged by Boris Yeltsin, presumably on behalf of an Anglo-American conspiracy of some sort. Um, and uh, so I thought it was very interesting um, and quite important. And uh, it, it coincides with um, uh, the fact that um, uh, there is now increasing certainty that unless he dies from a cheeseburger or something, before uh, November, uh, Mr. Trump is likely to be re-elected president. He has very different views of what the transatlantic relationship should be than uh, Mr. Biden, uh, who is very much in the mold of a cold warrior. Uh, so I thought it was very interesting and quite impactful. I, I would agree. Can I just make two quick points? I was reading today the first actual discussion of the content of this interview in the British media, which was written by a journalist called Charles Moore, not someone perhaps very well known in the United States, but he's a very influential journalist. He's been editor of The Spectator and of The Daily Telegraph, and he's a well-known journalist from the conservative view. He was very impressed by Putin. I mean, this is... It, it, I mean, he's very critical of Putin, very hostile to Putin, but he spoke about Putin being completely in command of his facts, giving an accomplished account of you know the things he wanted to say. Um, he said it was boring in places. He made all the usual criticisms, but it was clear that he was very, very impressed by the interview. But going back to the interview itself, there was two things about it that Putin was returning to continuously that really I felt he, he, he is he was wanting to convey firstly he does not blame himself for the breakdown in relations with the West as far as he's concerned he very much wanted a good relationship above all with the United States and he was talking about that I thought at great length and giving lots of detail but perhaps more interestingly, going forward, it seems to me that in spite of everything, Putin is still prepared to reach out and sit down with the Americans and talk about things, provided they're prepared to do so. He's much more doubtful and sceptical now than he was but I thought overall he's still prepared to do it. He still says to himself, this is a relationship, and a relationship that is too important in the long term to allow emotions to, you know, my own feelings to get in the way of trying to come to some sort of 
um, you know, compromises or understandings on the key issues. Um, at least that was my thought. I mean, I don't know what others think about that. I thought um, he came across as rational, uh, in command of the facts, um, capable of and engaged in strategic reasoning. I don't think it's a surprise that um, uh, Mr. Putin, early in his uh, tenure in office, like Mr. Yeltsin before him, wanted to become part of European uh, transatlantic world. It was very revealing to hear the discussion he, he of, of his discussion with Bill Clinton about joining NATO. Um, I, that was a time when it was possible that the uh, Partnership for Peace, which I had something to do with designing, um, was uh, going to transform NATO into a pan-European cooperative security organization. And Russia was clearly signaling its willingness to be part of that. Now, to me, um, as a distant student of European history, not an European at all, I'm, uh, my ancestors, or some of them were here 20,000 years ago on the other side of the Atlantic, and um, the Freemans arrived in 1620 after a scandal in London. Um, anyway, um, and, a, and a convenient religious conversion, I should, I should add. Um, so um, I think um, as a stu distant student of European history, it seems to me that European peace does depend on, on an organic relationship, particularly between Germany and Russia. Uh, Germany now at the center of NATO and and Russia, uh, unfortunately, now severed from its European role once again, uh, as was done after World War I with the Bolshevik Revolution, with tragic results. So um, I think Mr. Putin was very consistent in, in arguing for uh, uh, some sort of uh, Russian role in the management of European affairs of a peaceful nature. And indeed, he reminded us, without explicitly saying so, uh, that uh, this war began as a response to the refusal of NATO and the United States, particularly Mr. Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, to uh, sit down and have any kind of talk about either Ukrainian neutralization or broader European security architecture that would be non-threatening to Russia as well as to others. Uh, and it was the refusal to talk that left Mr. Putin with the option of using force, which he which he did. Uh, so I think uh, it's all very consistent, um, and uh, I'm not sure to what extent anyone in the West, after the uh, absolute avalanche of hostile propaganda we've suffered from, has an open mind on this. But I think anyone who does have an open mind would conclude that the reaction from Washington and Mr. Stoltenberg, that we won't sit down and talk with Mr. Putin, is very wrong-headed, and it's just going to result in a lot more dead Ukrainians. Uh, and further, rather than further isolation and weakening of Russia, further reorientation of Russia toward the East and South, and further strengthening of Russia militarily and economically. Uh, so uh, I thought this was, as I said, quite impactful. If anyone who listens, of course, immediately, going back to Tucker Carlson's claim that he was blocked from the interview by U.S. intelligence for years, immediately, as Glenn Deason mentioned, 
even before the interview was aired, it was dismissed as propaganda. Uh, well, it takes the propagandists to recognize one, I suppose. There was also, uh, I guess, a good to, to some extent drew a link between the the failure of establishing a pan-European security architecture and the war because uh, uh, I think that fact was uh, it has been lost on many because I, I brought it up myself when giving various speeches that uh, both Yeltsin and Putin actually uh, suggested that they could join NATO once it became evident that the OSCE would uh, effectively be non-functioning. Uh, or not have the role, at least, as a pan-European security uh, institution after the decision was made to expand NATO instead, making NATO the main one. And again, not once they got the cold shoulder there, of course, they, you know, from 2010 to 2008, you know, so several times they attempted to put forward the idea of negotiating some kind of a, a common European, pan-European security architecture, but every time they were uh, rebuffed and... Uh, uh, and uh, as both American and Russian officials have uh, uh, suggested throughout these years, is well, what, what what's going to happen when we reach Ukraine? This is really again, as uh, uh, Willie Burns said, this is the the reddest of the red lines. Uh, once we cross this, uh, we might have conflict. And again, I, th I thought it was quite helpful to put that into a into a context because. Uh, heard people assume it was uh, a conspiracy theory that they asked, even though it's well documented. So. One, one has to ask why Ukraine, which is the poorest and most corrupt European country, um, why the Russians propping up Ukraine as a neutral country with a, economic links to both East and West and serving as a buffer between Russia and the rest of Europe was not in our interest. I think it was very much in our interest. Um, and what I think is happening now is the reduction of Ukraine to a rump state, it has already lost considerable territory, which is not coming back. And those who uh, have conferences in Kyiv in which they talk about recovering Crimea for Ukraine and um, uh, bringing the Russian speakers back into uh, under subordination to Ukrainian speakers uh, are, 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 are wildly uh, delusional. So, um, I think we need to go back to basics here. Uh, and I would say that uh, since NATO has become uh, an issue with Mr. Trump uh, saying various things about it, um, uh, consistent with his earlier statements, but more extreme perhaps, I think it's important to r remember that uh, from at least from the American point of view, NATO has um, a number of merits, which, which um, uh, argue for its perpetuation. Uh, one is that, um, to be honest, uh, from an American point of view, uh, left on to their own devices, Europeans in the 20th century, on three different occasions, messed things up to the extent that we had to cross the Atlantic to rectify the balance. That was the case in World War One. it was the case in World War Two, and arguably it was the case in the Cold War, although we had a good deal to do with the imbalance in that case. Um, so the lesson is that from an American point of view, that Europe and America are part of a single ge geopolitical zone, and we need to keep our hand in, in Europe. That's point one. Point two, um, keeping our hand in, in Europe is very useful to Europeans, 
because it submerges an otherwise dominant Germany uh, in a larger constellation and provides some balance. And third, there is a reason for balance between Russia and Western Europe, and we can supply that. Those are all positives. Uh, there are others. NATO is the only institution that ever developed an effective software, if you will, doctrine for managing true multinational military operations. Um, the Warsaw Pact never did that. Um, the Eastern European auxiliaries of the Red Army were just that. They were not full participants. Um, and um, the architecture that NATO developed, the 3000 standardization agreements, which enabled um, Alexander, a Greek, to cooperate with a Turk, even though there's no love lost between the two, um, and perhaps different languages. Now, this is a very precious legacy, which uh, is is valuable on a global level. Um, so all those are good things to preserve NATO. What is not a good thing is NATO as an instrument of American hegemony in Europe. And uh, what Mr. Trump is saying as a populist is that uh, there are arguments for a different American relationship with Europeans and with NATO in general. And I don't think that argument should be dismissed out of hand. I'll stop here. Can I ask a question here, which is about Russian attitudes to NATO? Because there's a sort of widespread view that the Russians are straightforwardly hostile to NATO. I have never come across a statement by a single Russian official which said that they want NATO to be dismantled. They don't want NATO, they don't want NATO on their border, but why would the Russians want to see NATO and the United States withdraw completely from Europe and the Europeans left to themselves, given that Russian-European relations have not always been easy? I mean, the Russians were involved in the two world wars. There have been other wars that they were involved in as well. They, I mean... Maybe I'm going too far now, but I mean, there might be risks that, you know, there might be a serious German rearmament, perhaps extending to nuclear weapons. I mean, that was, I think, talked about at one time, you know, by Adenauer and others. Surely the Russians would not want to see that. From their perspective, this is, you know, my own view. I mean, I may be wrong here, but their optimal arrangement would be an understanding with the United States and with NATO there, but not on their own borders and their security respected. That's a good summary, I think, of what Mr. Putin demanded in the fall of 2022, um, sorry, 2021, and, um, and which was rebuffed. Um, but um, I think the issue of, of the Russian-German relationship remains of great concern to Moscow. Uh, and for many reasons, uh, they share an interest with Europeans of having Germany submerged in a larger architecture uh, and not having nuclear weapons. And I think uh, uh, the, the fact that um, Russia argued not for the, not they, of course they demanded uh, a rollback of U.S. deployments into Eastern Europe, 
Um, but I think that was a talking point. The main focus was on not having Ukraine added to the American sphere of influence in Europe and not having American troops on their border. Uh, and I don't think they particularly object to the Baltics in that regard, because the Baltics are a menace to no one, really. But um, it is um, uh, what the Russians will see rationally depends on what they're presented with. And at the moment, they've not been presented with any vision consistent with the one you've just outlined, Alexander. I think it's... Uh... Yeah, more helpful to look at it as uh, you suggested, because often I think these issues get too polarized. Either NATO all, is all bad or it's uh, all good, because I think that key, the key challenge after the Cold War was uh, well, re reforming it, if you will, to make it, uh, to, to draw on the benefits, uh, preserve them without, uh, well, going down the direction we did. Because I think the, the key problem is by beginning to expand NATO and uh, uh, well, we call it European integration, but effectively what we did, we told every country between NATO and Russia, if we choose between us or them, you know, we're moving the borders to the east, we're expanding our security at the expense of them. I think this was the key problem and also the transition. I think a lot of what gave NATO some stability as well during the Cold War was it was a status quo military bloc. But after the Cold War, it largely became revisionist when it began to expand, but also uh, attacking countries such as Yugoslavia, which is called out-of-area missions. And uh, so I, I agree with what Alexander said. I don't think the Russians demanded that NATO had to be uh, dismantled, simply that it shouldn't be an instrument against the Russians. So yeah. I think this is why both Yeltsin and Putin suggested, you know, they could join NATO, then it wouldn't be an instrument against them. Or in 2008, when President Medvedev proposed this, you know, new security architecture, he even said, you can keep NATO, but let's just have an overarching structure, which we belong. And uh, and uh, this was also a key issue in, at the end of 2013, when uh, a lot of NATO countries were destabilizing Ukraine. Uh, at that point, uh, the Russians and the Ukrainians came together, they actually proposed to the Europeans, Let's make this a trilateral agreement, you know. Let's have yeah. Ukraine as a bridge, uh, not as a border. Uh, we can have a deal where it's not a zero-sum game, not us or them. And well, that was the Europeans who said, absolutely not. Uh, Ukraine has to change, uh, choose. This is a civilizational choice, uh, you know, <laughs> civilization or the barbarians, effectively. So it was, uh, it was. Uh, I think this is the main uh, weakness, if you will, of NATO, that it never transitioned out of this block mentality. Uh, but uh, I would agree, there's a lot of things we should preserve from this. The Turks and the <laughs> Greeks, for example, having them together at the same table, uh, yeah, not a, a bad arrangement. So the question is, from the Russian point of view, is NATO a collective security organization aimed at Russia? Or is it a management? Is it a Council of Europe, Concert of Europe, instrument for the management of peace in Europe. If it's the latter, which is what I think um, uh, Mr. Yeltsin certainly in embracing the partnership for peace wanted, uh, Mr. Putin tried to follow up on in the beginning, uh, then I think uh, uh, you have a very different picture. Um, we, have, we have successfully, however, demonized both the Russians and Mr. Putin and it's clear that uh, we have taken the Ukrainians into war with the Russia of our imagination rather than the Russia that exists. Uh, so there's the problem. 
Putin said that he's open to talks. Is there any possibility of talks between the United States? And can I, this is a point where actually I, I, I'd be particularly curious for any, any, any observations that you might have, Ambassador, because he spoke about his interactions with American presidents. The fact that he came to what he thought were understandings with them, with Bill Clinton, about NATO membership, with George W. Bush on uh, the situation in the Northern Caucasus. And what then happened, according to Putin, is that, in effect, those, pres those presidents found that they couldn't work out, they couldn't push through or didn't want to push through the kind of understandings that Putin thought that he'd made with them. And this has made him very cynical it seems to me, about the whole position of the president in the U.S. system. And he seems to say that, well, ultimately, the president isn't really in charge. Other people are. The bureaucracy is. The elites are. There has to be a fundamental change. Is this really true? Because the American system, the political system, it seems to me, is constructed to a great extent around the president, who is the chief executive. And presidents in the past have been able to make a difference. Could a president make a difference again? A new president? Not necessarily Mr. Trump, by the way. I think so, although I have to say that we are in the midst of a prolonged uh, constitutional crisis um, in every sense. Um, our system is dysfunctional at the moment. Um, one might argue that our president is senile, um, and uh, there's a lot of visual evidence for that. Um, and um, Mr. Trump is certainly a wild card. Um, in connection with NATO, I want to say a word or two about Trump's position and why it has the resonance it does in the United States. I think there are two, two sorts of people who um, see something constructive in in Trump's position that uh, he won't honor Article 5 um, unless Europeans pay up. Of course, he has a completely misguided and uh, mistaken view of what NATO is all about um, in terms and how it works financially and, and otherwise. But his basic point does resonate with populist sentiment. Americans ask, you know, after 75 years, uh, why in Europe being wealthy and and uh, uh, having a larger GDP than us uh, and a larger population uh, and spending four or five times as much on defense as the Russians, the designated enemy, why is it that we have to fund European defense? Um, and um, I think that's not an unreasonable question. And it's not unreasonable, among other things, because... If you analyze what we've been doing, what we've been doing is saying, Europeans, you must spend more and do more in your own defense. But if you don't, we'll come and do it for you. And that uh, deprives Europeans, has deprived Europeans until recently of any incentive to, uh, to boost uh, self-defense capability, uh, whether collectively or individually. Um, that has changed mainly as a result of fear of American um, lack of resolve, uh, unreliability, erratic behavior under Mr. Trump, um, who, as I suggested, is very likely to be reelected, it appears. 
Um, so fear has driven Germany to double its budget, supposedly, and others, uh, Poland, to produce really quite a formidable defense establishment, um, and others uh, to boost defense also. And it has brought uh, now uh, Finland and Sweden into, into NATO. So um, this is uh, the legacy of American erratic behavior is a stronger European defense impulse. So that's the first point. The second point is there are those in the United States who are not populists, but strategic thinkers, who imagine that a more effective, efficient, and appropriate, politically appropriate arrangement would be for the United States to be the backup uh, to European balance, conducted mainly by Europeans. Um, and those who argue for this might come to the logical conclusion, given the merits of NATO that I mentioned, that NATO should be Europeanized, that the supreme commander in NATO should be a European, not an American, and that America's role should be supportive rather than leading, and um, that Europeans should be responsible primarily for European affairs. That would tie into the possibility of a pan-European cooperative security system. Um, it would backstop that. Um, this discussion is not going on very much because Mr. Trump's premises basically remind one of the stopped clock that is right twice a day, you know, the reasons for he's taking the positions he is are quite mistaken, and yet he's onto something, probably, both at the level of populist sentiment and at the level of strategic reasoning. So your question, Alexander, can a president make a difference, may well be answered. Uh, as people try to make sense of what Mr. Trump has put forward, um, which he himself is probably incapable of doing. It's reminded when, because uh, I heard Putin speak about this more than once, uh, you know, because he met so many U.S. presidents in his very long presidency, and it reminds me sometimes about Milton Friedman's uh, tyranny of the status quo. That you know, if you want to make big changes, you have to be, do it immediately, because if you wait too long, the bureaucracy, if you will, will start to uh, it will take over. But uh, I also had the same thought about Trump, though, because uh, it it's. Uh, it, it seems to me that his main concern was the lack of return on investment, if you will, because if you look at, well, his view on NAFTA or the TPP in Asia, uh, you know, he he would mind the trade agreements in either, you know, Americas or in Asia where America could write the trade rules. But if that means U.S., U.S. leadership vis-a-vis -vis China is good, but if it means transferring competitive advantage to allies, then it would be a negative thing. So I think... Uh, but again, he's—I he's, liked how he framed it. Uh, the clock, yeah, this right twice a day. He seemed to uh, yeah, stumble into this, which had a wide, wider appeal. And uh, I guess it could also help the Europeans would have a greater role in security. It would be less NATO would be less of a hegemonic instrument, which would make it less anti-Russian as well. Uh, but uh, beyond Trump possibly coming in and wrecking NATO, is there? Do you see any other possible cracks emerging? Um, well, I, I think the um, the neoconservatives are taking some hard knocks as we speak, um, and they have been very much the intellectual inspiration for um, disastrous policies um, 
not just in Ukraine, but in the Middle East, and I would argue with regard to China. Um, Mr. Trump um, is, I would say, an economic moron, um, just to put it clearly, um, has no understanding whatsoever of uh, basic economics, and is very much uh, involved, thinks of everything in terms of a zero-sum game when economics, by definition, is not zero-sum. So I think um, uh, he will indeed be a wrecking ball. And he has, unfortunately, got quite a number of equally lunatic followers who have been preparing uh, to help him wreck things. Uh, so his second term, he will be more empowered uh, by political appointees than he was in the first term. Uh, and it's clear that he has a grip on the Republican Party, which has become a kind of cult. It's no longer uh, a, a broad-based um, political party. Who else is out there on, on, the, on the horizon? Uh, I see Kamala Harris declaring that she's ready to serve. Uh, I don't think anyone wants her to serve. And um, they, um, I don't see... A clear, um, a clear leadership ahead. Um, so I think you know we're going into an election in November, which appears likely to be a choice between uh, someone who is senescent, if not senile, and incompetent, and also has got us into numerous forever wars, um, versus someone who's a very unstable, non-genius. Um, so. Um, this is a choice that is not welcome. And you can see the number of people deserting the two established parties going up, independents uh, emerging as the major block in our voter uh, voting system. This is what happened in the 1850s, uh, preceding our civil war, but also preceding the reorganization of our politics and the emergence of a third party, the Republican Party, with an anti-slavery uh, platform. I think it's entirely possible that we could see a third party emerge with, a, with an anti-war um, platform. Um, if you look at the reactions to the, the genocide in Gaza, uh, then um, you see, particularly uh, among young uh, people with intellectual pretensions, a great deal of outrage. They don't want to be, they, don't, they condemn Mr. Biden, He's beginning to squirm, and he's leaked that he's been very annoyed with Mr. Netanyahu, but he hasn't done anything, so that's clearly a political um, uh, stance or posture rather than anything serious. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, a train wreck waiting to happen, and out of train wrecks um, come new arrangements. So I don't know. Uh, but uh, I don't see any leader on the horizon that um, that can grip all these things. Uh, we have a, a generation of leaders who are militarily illiterate, uh, have no concept of diplomatic history. Our foreign policy is now almost entirely diplomacy-free. We regard bombing as the principal form of communication with other nations. I mean, in fact, if you, if you read what's being said about you know, bombing Yemen and um, bombing various pro-Iranian uh, groups um, scattered around the Middle East, you know, that's exactly what people are saying. We're sending them a message. 
well, it might be cheaper and more effective to sit down and talk with them, but we don't believe in that anymore. And I think the Ukraine thing is discrediting this approach. So is the unfolding tragedy in Gaza. So, um, and I believe um, the same dynamic is playing out with China, but that's a different discussion. I, I, what what you seem to be saying, if I've understood this, is that we have a we, we're in drift. We are we are drifting both in Ukraine and uh, in the Middle East, and certainly in Ukraine. I have to say this. I mean, I've been looking at the situation in Ukraine. You both know I do my programs every day. I look at the situation. I don't think any person who is looking at the situation closely now has any real expectations any longer that Ukraine is going to win this war. The only question is how bad and complete the defeat is going to be and what the outcome in terms of a, of a negotiated settlement that the Russians might see might be. You would have thought that given that reality, people in Washington especially, because that's the main capital, would be thinking about what to do in this situation and that they would be talking to the Russians about it and trying to find some some way out and some way forward, if only in order to preserve Ukraine itself or at least to preserve something there. And there's nothing. Um, Putin says, you know, I'm prepared to talk. All Zelensky has to do is cancel this edict that he's made. Um, and we got this message from the White House. I think it was to the Washington Post or the New York Times, U.S. official. Well, you know, there need to be negotiations, but Mr. Putin clearly isn't interested in them. So nothing. And the situation just deteriorates. Day after day, people die, more destruction, more death, more territory lost, more cities destroyed. It, 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 it's drift, but it's dangerous and demoralizing drift. It's not only drift. Um, Victoria, Victoria Newland went to Kiev, and if I uh, understand what she said um, and what she counseled, it was to start long-range strikes deep into Russian territory. In other words, she doesn't care, despite her Ukrainian heritage, she doesn't care about Ukrainians. This is She's in this as an anti-Russian move. Um, and um, so uh, I would say, um, Alexander, that you're absolutely correct. Um, I sometimes wonder whether we have not come up with the world's first genuinely, genuinely autistic government. You know, you kick us in the shins and we don't notice. Um, or maybe it's just solipsism. We think we can rearrange the world, world mentally without doing anything. Um, but in any way, it's in any rate, it's delusional. Um, and it's. Um, it's ahistorical, and it is contrary to any good principle of statecraft. Just think in that context about the extent to which our policy has pushed China and Russia into an embrace, which is an unnatural embrace in many ways, um, and um, uh, how we have failed to come to grips with the rise of the rest, as Farid Zakaria aptly put it, um, you know, our relationship with India is um, quite uh, self-contradictory at this point. Um, so um, I, to go back to uh, European security architecture, 
um, your own country uh, committed Brexit, um, which uh, arguably has not strengthened Britain on a global level, contrary to the wild claims of those who advocated it. Um, and um, and I think there's now concern about Dexit, alternative for Deutschland, carrying out uh, a, a German uh, exit from the EU, again, based on populist reactions to immigration and other problems uh, in Europe. Um, so uh, this is the moment to go back to the train wreck. This is a moment when Europeans ought to be thinking about what happens when um, Mr. Trump is elected and does what he says he will do, which is in the first 24 hours, ends the war in Ukraine. He will have to end it on Russian terms because what's happened on the battlefield will determine what is possible at the negotiating table. And what's happened on the battlefield is Ukraine has failed uh, to reassert itself effectively against a more powerful Russia, and it's in a war of attrition that it can't win. Um, so um, it's run, you know, we've run out of Ukrainians with, with which to um, harass the Russians, basically. Uh, so uh, what happens when there is a rump Ukraine, possibly having lost its Black Sea coast entirely, this goes on long enough, um, what do we do about that? Um, you know, I think we'll be left with Mr. Putin's original demands. First, neutralization for Ukraine. Second, protection for Russian speakers in Ukraine, now presumably under Russian rather than Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, and uh, third, uh, an invitation to talk about security architecture in Europe, given the changed circumstances. Is Europe going to be ready for that? What is European Council to the United States going to be? There was always this wonderful uh, uh, metaphor of British Greeks advising American Romans, you know? Um, where are the British Greeks these days? Um, where are the wise men helping the neophytes at statecraft to work it out? Uh, I don't see it. So uh, I think there is a challenge here. Uh, regardless of what happens in my country, there's a challenge for Europeans. Um, Europe is much less than the, the sum of its parts. And that is something that is, I think, injurious to Europeans. It's injurious to global balance. It's injurious to world peace. Uh, and, uh, and it needs to be redressed. What ideas do Europeans have for this? I don't hear too many. I think that's the... One of the takeaways from this interview by uh, Tucker Carlson was, uh, uh, I think many people were surprised because, uh, well, maybe they didn't know that uh, Russia has been open for negotiations all along. Uh, meanwhile, the you know Ukrainians had a law will have a law against actually negotiating. But but what what was also very interesting is that uh, that the, the the demands for Russia they will incrementally increase, and I, I don't think people. I appreciate how this conflict has spiraled out of control. Because again, before 2014, no one in Russia made any claims to Crimea. That was a result of the coup. And of course, in the seven years of the Minsk agreement, what the Russians offered was, you know, we'll 
commit to Donbass should be reintegrated into Ukraine. And then, of course, after seven years of sabotaging it, that was off the table. Now Donbass uh, was well, for independence. I'm just wondering me, if we can make this longer. Let me interrupt because I think Mr. Yeah. deserves some credit for not having moved the goalposts yet. Now, he probably will, but he has not yeah. done that, really. Um, and um, therefore, um, you can still refer to the original draft treaty that he put forward uh, as a basis for discussion uh, in December of 2021. Uh, so um, I think um, uh, he may, as you said, uh, as uh, Ukraine falls back, Russia is likely to escalate its demands. It's certainly going to be in a better bargaining position unless tr current trends are somehow reversed, which as Alexander said, nobody expects. So um, I think, uh, uh, you know, he's been pretty consistent uh, and um, uh, the consistency is not the foaming at the mouth monster uh, demonized Putin that we've been told is out there. And I still receive an um, enormous amount of material from the um, uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian um, vilification industrial process, uh, uh, complex uh, directed at uh, denigrating Mr. Putin. Well, I don't have any fondness for him either. Um, I remember once in Beijing, being invited to dinner by the head of the KGB there, um, and uh, having him examine me as though I were a side of beef that he was about to cut up with a you know in, in uh, a scalpel. Um, when Mr. Bush, George W. the shrub, not the not the Bush, um, looked into Mr. Putin's eyes and saw his soul, um, I looked into his eyes and saw a KGB guy. Uh, I think he's. Pretty realistic, cynical, manipulative, all those things. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't do a deal with him when it's in Russian interest. And I think Russian interests have been willfully misportrayed. I don't. I think Mr. Putin is absolutely correct. He was asked, "Do you want to take Latvia? Do you want to, you know, uh, march into Poland?" Um, and he said, "No." And I think that is quite credible. Um, you know, <laughs> it's not as though history which he's clearly quite familiar with, um, required that kind of advance by Russia. Yeah, well, where I was going with it was we, well, we, we seem now to accept that the Ukraine and NATO is, is losing this. So I'm just, if if the losses then would imply, if we don't negotiate an end, this could end up uh, Ukraine losing its entire Black Sea coastline. Uh, it seems, as Alexander suggested, that we surely there's a time we need an exit strategy yeah. at some point uh, while we still have some uh, negotiation power here. I quite agree. I quite agree. Um, you you know, things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse, very likely. And um, so if you care about Ukraine and Ukrainians or you care about European security, you want to bring this to an end. Uh, and... Um, uh, we should be thinking about that. Uh, but there's not much evidence of much thought anywhere at this point. Um, we're in the same position that we, we're in with Gaza. So we say, well, we're very dissatisfied with the way things are going, but we're not going to do anything to stop it. 
Could could I just turn to the Middle East because, of course, it's a region you also know. I mean, you were I, you were ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Um, Putin has been recently to Saudi Arabia. I think I can remember a time when Saudi Arabia and the Soviet Union did not have diplomatic relations, and in fact, they were on extremely bad terms to all appearances. Now he's very well received in the Gulf. The Saudis themselves seem to be annoyed with the United States. They issued a statement recently after Admiral Kirby made some comments about normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which I, I found uncharacteristic. I mean, I, you, you're much more familiar with the Saudis than I am, but they always impress me as people who speak very softly about international relations. I may be wrong here. But, no, you're not. but you're not. It, it seemed to me an unusually strong statement coming from them. What have we done to lose the Saudis so completely? I mean, I say we, I mean, you know, because it, the British also have had a strong relationship with the Saudis. But the Saudis seem to be looking at their region, looking at our policies, and they're saying, well, it's time for us to make new friends, or at least so it looks to me from a distance. So one way of looking at what's happening on a broader level that unites Europe and the Middle East is that American hegemony is in retreat. It is ending, and um, it's ending with um, the, the usual sort of unseemly rattles in the throat that people have when they die. Um, and so um, this, in the case of the Saudis, um, uh, you know, uh, they have lost confidence in the West. They are taking advantage of the collapse of the bipolar order and the unipolar order and the emergence of a new global disorder to do what other middle-ranking powers are doing, namely assert their own interests independent of any patron. Um, this is uh, something that... Uh, has led them to uh, drive for the diversification of their international relationships. Now, I mean, uh, I've made the point elsewhere that Saudis are Muslim, they can have four wives, they're not limited to one, um, and America's too big and fat and stuck in their bed, they can't throw us out, uh, but they can have other wives. And they're busily courting the Chinese, the Russians, um, the, and some Europeans. Um, who have uh, Germany, for example. France has always had a role in Saudi Arabia. The Brits, of course, uh, had a role and, and still do. Um, but they are reaching out to Brazil, among others. They're trying to patch up their relations with Turkey and other middle-ranking power. Um, and uh, so uh, it's very clear that um, uh, they uh, see safety uh, in the diversification of their international relationships. They just had a huge uh, defense show in Riyadh um, where the dominant presence was the Chinese, uh, the first time ever. Um, now, whether that will result in concrete uh, transactions uh, of any consequence is a real question. Um, but the Russians were there too, not but rather modestly. Um, and the U.S. influence um, has been undermined by a series of um, things. Um, 
beginning with the uh, U.S. glee at the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak, which discredited our role as the protector of rulers, um, uh, 9-11, which led to the consolidation of Islamophobia in the United States and um, a sense of American unreliability, a betrayal, if you will. Um, and um, uh, the fact that others are rising, the Chinese, the Russians are resurgent, um, and they've proven the Russians have become the go-to diplomatic power with the Chinese in the region. It was the Chinese, not the United States, that brokered Saudi-Iranian uh, rapprochement. It was the Russians who managed the crisis with so-called chemical weapons in Syria. Uh, and um, so uh, the United States has lost clout, influence, leverage, and the Gaza war is now destroying what remained of that. Uh, since uh, the United States is clearly intervening in the Red Sea against an avowed Yemeni, uh, the de facto government in Yemen, which is the Houthis, um, effort to conduct the world's first land-based sea blockade of a genocidal Israel. Um, and so the war is spreading. Uh, the United States keeps saying Admiral Kirby, who resembles no one so, so much as the famous Baghdad Bob, who claimed that nothing was happening while we were invading Iraq, um, has no credibility, really. Um, this, um, this is a retreat. Now, it is not a retreat in military terms where they're, but it's a demonstration of the inefficacy and the limits on military power. Uh, military power can decide a few things, but they are just a few. Um, it has to be coupled to a political strategy, and it has to be managed with diplomacy, uh, or it doesn't produce anything. Um, that is the lesson of the communication through bombing um, rather than uh, dialogue. Um, and uh, so I think in the end, um, for those of you who are, I think Glenn Deason, you're a famous academic, um, this will give you much to study and many new books to publish about the ineptitude of Western statecraft and uh, some lessons that ought to be learned. Um, and I'm hopeful that, um, like the famous mule in Kentucky that, or sorry, Missouri, the Missouri mule, uh, which is balks and fails to understand everything until it's hit on the head with a two-by-four, um, we will uh, wake up uh, with a concussion and rethink things um, with help from academics. Well, on the topic of retreat, uh, uh, given all this, this uh, attacks on uh, the U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq, and also in Iraq, the they're voting yet again, or voted already, right. to ask the, the foreign troops to leave Iraq. Uh, do, you, do you see this as being uh, realistic? Or do you, uh, well, I uh, don't want you to look in a crystal ball, but well, well, what, what would be your main expectation? Do you think the US will pull out of uh, Syria and Iraq, or will they dig in? I think, I think we'll have to, but I think we will not like it. Um, and we will resist, as we have been doing. It's very clear from that Iraqis don't want us there anymore. Um, and our presence there is in part, as it is in Jordan, 
with the uh, Tower 22 uh, base directed at the uh, vivisection of Syria, which is an Israeli interest that apparently we have embraced. And so we have an illegal troop presence in Syria. It's not there at the, with, the, with the permission of the Syrian government or under any international aegis. It's entirely unilateral. Um, and uh, we even bomb once in a while, uh, as the Israelis do almost daily. So, um, no, I think we will be forced out of that little corner of the, of the world. Uh, and uh, I, I note again, Mr. Trump, to his credit, wanted us to get out. And he was essentially vetoed by what some call the deep state, um, which is the neocon infested uh, political leadership that he installed at the head of American agencies. You talk to uh, American military officers, for the most part, they don't want they don't want to get into a war with Iran. They don't they don't particularly like what we're doing with Yemen. Uh, they don't see the cost benefit analysis working out, uh, and so forth. Um, and they're uncomfortable with their presence in Syria. Uh, and they don't like to be in a country where they're not welcome. So, uh, but we have a political leadership which insists on American primacy everywhere. And that is being shattered. The primacy is being shattered. And eventually those who advocate it will have to come to grips with that. One last, last comment from me, and uh, I'm, I'm basically done. But about the Middle East, again, one of the things that I always remember, I mean, you know, going all the way back, my, my memory stretches back to the 70s, time when you were working with, I think, in the Nixon administration. But at that time, the United States was always coming up with plans for the Middle East plans to try and secure Middle East peace. I can remember Kissinger flying backwards and forwards from one capital to, to another. The United States was always trying to find some kind of resolution to the underlying problems of the Middle East. And they always understood that, or so it seemed to me at that time and since, that they always understood the centrality of the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict at its center. I don't get anything like that sense today. No. Uh, it's as if uh, policy, decision-making, has been contracted out to Prime Minister Netanyahu, which seems to me a most strange state of affairs. And uh, how has that come about? Well, I think you must remember that the Kissinger shuttle diplomacy and other efforts, which I think were sincere to make peace, uh, Jimmy Carter's effort at Camp David, which produced a peace between, not a cold peace, but a, a peace between Egypt and Israel, and relieved Israel of the need to defend itself against the Egyptian threat. Uh, all these things took place in the context of US-Soviet rivalry. And the driver behind the sincere effort to make peace was to eliminate uh, what it was perceived as an opportunity for malign behavior by the Soviet Union. Um, now, uh, the Cold War ended. The Soviet Union defaulted on the contest for global hegemony. Um, and uh, the United States experienced uh, a period 
of, uh, of uh, uh, unilateralism, unipolar moment it was called, in which we imagined we were omniscient and, and, and invulnerable and all those things. Um, we failed to deal with the lesson of 9-11, which is that if you bomb people, they'll find a way to bomb back, even if they don't have um, you know, advanced aircraft. Um, and we, we saw passenger aircraft converted into cruise missiles. Um, so um, we didn't take that lesson aboard. Uh, but um, sometime in the Clinton administration, um, the United States succumbed to two phenomena. One was, or maybe three, one, during the Cold War, there's a famous statement by President Kennedy who said, um, if I make a mistake in domestic policy, it can embarrass me. But if I make a mistake in foreign policy, it could kill us all. And there was a sense of the gravity of foreign affairs to disappear during the moment, the period of American apparent omnipotence. Uh, and foreign policy became a discretionary activity. You could either have it or not. Um, second, in that context, we applied to foreign policy the venal model we have applied to domestic policy. Namely, we enfranchise whatever interest group is most vocal on the issue and able to deliver the most votes. And in the case of the Middle East, that's the Israel lobby. So just as the, um, and I'm sorry to say, the Save the Wales lobby got the Norway for a while, um, but, um, you know, and uh, the Greek lobby got Cyprus and, uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, China was a, 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 a coalition of lobbies um, of one sort or another. Uh, but uh, the Middle East became the sole prerogative of the Israel lobby. And we saw this in action with Mr. Netanyahu's defiance of the president. Uh, and his address to Congress, where uh, there was widespread kowtowing uh, to, uh, I should say, domestic American donors uh, to campaigns. So that happened. Um, and third, um, I think uh, one of the consequences of the Cold War, I've argued elsewhere, is that we lost the capacity to think strategically because we had a grand strategy devised by George Kennan called containment. And the idea was, if you wall off the Soviet Union, it will eventually uh, die of its own deficiencies. Its own demerits will bring it down, which is exactly what happened. Um, but by the time it happened, we forgot what containment was all about. And we thought it was a military strategy rather than a political military strategy or an economic strategy. Anyway. So uh, we lost the capacity to reason strategically. We also lost diplomatic vocabulary distinctions. Anybody who cooperates with us is an ally. Well, historically, an ally is someone who has an obligation to you, and you have an obligation to them, and there's mutual commitment, and it's fairly unconditional or it's defined in a treaty. Um, it's different from an entente, which is a limited partnership for limited purposes perhaps for a limited time. We've forgotten all these distinctions. Um, and uh, we seem to now believe that the world is organized around two things. One, ideological contest between autocracy and democracy, which is not irrelevant, but which is hardly the organizing principle of global affairs. 
um, and great power rivalry. This is the very moment that, as we were discussing, countries like the Saudis or the French or others, middle-ranking Turkey or Russia, arguably resurgent, uh, are more assertive. And uh, the world is more complex. It is not a simple rivalry between the United States and China or the United States and Russia or um, whoever. It's much more complex. It's a shifting kaleidoscopic uh, geopolitical picture. But we don't see that. Uh, we, we, we cling to the old views because they're comfortable. We thought we won the Cold War. Uh, and uh, so why not win the next war by doing the same thing? Well, a one-trick pony is not a very successful animal. And um, that is, I'm afraid, what we've become. So that's my answer to you on the Middle East, but also, I think, on European affairs. Um, we need to rediscover basic principles of statecraft and reintegrate diplomacy with, with the military and rethink trade policy because um, there is now a great deal of hand-wringing in the United States about the demise of our shipbuilding capacity and the collapse of naval construction uh, in relation to China. I think I saw one figure that Chinese have three or five commercial ships under construction. I mean, sorry, we do, three or five, and they have 1,700. Uh, there's just no comparison. Well, why is this? It is because of protectionist measures which began in the 1920s, including the Jones Act, which prohibited foreign-made ships from being used between American ports in the context of the Panama Canal, that was pretty important. And um, ship, it killed the shipbuilding industry. Uh, so, uh, we're, and yet we're about to embark on further protectionism. We're promised a 60% global tariff on imports if Mr. Trump wins. Um, he somehow thinks foreigners pay tariffs, not consumers in the United States. Uh, anyway, um, I did describe him as an economic moron. I will not. I will stand by that. Um, you have a final, just a last question. I was curious if you have any, uh, well, prediction or expectations uh, what might happen in Europe because uh, you talked about uh, being the Americans becoming too comfortable and one trick pony, but I feel the same applies to Europe. Uh, uh, when there's instability, there seems to be this instinct to run into the embrace of the United States. But again, uh, this is at the same time as the Europeans are not quite comfortable with uh, the genocide being supported, you know, uh, in Gaza. You know, no one's very that comfortable with going after Iran or China. But at the same time, the Europe is becoming one big front line now, it seems. We're cutting ourselves off from China, Russia. Deindustrialization, de economic decline. Yet there's this impulse that uh, the familiar and the comfortable is if we just go go into our line system. And in this country, specifically in Norway, it's uh, it's quite shocking. Uh, through at least during the Cold War, we had a no base policy. Now we're handing yep. over a ton of bases to the United States with sovereign right. control, even though they have objective of challenging the Russians in the Arctic, which wasn't it's not necessarily in. The, Norway's interest and all of this betting everything, the whole house on the partnership with the US. At the same time, the media is telling us, well, in a few months, uh, Trump may take the election 
and he's the new Hitler. So there doesn't seem to be much of a coherent plan <laughs> moving forward. And of course, a huge absence of any reasonable debate. So, and uh, I see this across Europe. There's uh, a bit of a yeah, Europe, Europe is um, uh, from uh, from my perspective. Um, I have to say, um, I always considered European discussions of the new European man and other um, interesting ideas, um, the equivalent of sticking your head in the oven, turning on the gas. Uh, I mean, it was quite soporific um, by any standard. Um, and Europe doesn't seem to have gotten over this. Uh, Europe is at a moment comparable to that in the history of my own country after our War of Independence, when we had the Articles of Confederation, a very weak union, uh, which didn't work. And um, fortunately, we had quite brilliant leadership at the time, and uh, which we don't now, I'm sorry to say. Uh, and uh, we, we rose to the occasion and created a federal system, which worked very well for 200 and some years. Uh, it's now becoming a bit of a problem we're back with nullification by Texas of federal government decisions. So Europe has failed to transform itself. And in fact, it has been diverted by terrible issues like immigration, illegal immigration, the flow of immigrants across the Mediterranean and from the Middle East. Europe, of course, the the United States and Europe had something to do with destabilizing these regions. Um, intervention in Libya comes to mind. The intervention in Syria comes to mind. Uh, but the intervention in Iraq comes to mind. The intervention in Afghanistan comes to mind. And yet, um, so we have uh, a, a, an Italian government that is quite out of step with um, other Europeans. Uh, I'm not quite sure what is going on in France. Um, it's very puzzling. Um, uh, Britain has conducted its exit from the EU uh, with a lot of unresolved issues hanging over the relationship. Uh, and Germany uh, is in a, in a populist mood. And I must say, uh, I was quite surprised by the Norwegian uh, change on basing policy. Um, because I always thought that Norway was quite sensible, part of NATO, very much part of the West, um, willing to allow exercises on its territory, but not any permanent presence. That made a great deal of sense. The same with the Finns. Um, but uh, these things are now changing, uh, and we'll have to deal with the consequences of that. Uh, again, uh, I don't think you'll find answers in the United States. Uh, these, just as the United States didn't find an answer in Great Britain to the failure of the Confederation. Um, so, uh, uh, I don't know. You're Europeans. Get your act together. Great advice. Good, very good advice. I mean, difficult to do. I mean, you, you talk about the political crisis in the United States. We have a similar, I think, institutional political leadership crisis in Europe at the moment, which um, I, I think is profound. I mean, and seems to be universal right across Europe um, and difficult in some ways to understand why it's happened and very difficult to resolve. 
But anyway, that that's that's my last comment and perhaps good sure. advice for us to listen to here in Europe as well. I would say bonne chance. <laughs> good luck. Thank you very much.